Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast, a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. Today, not only am I joined by Dom Lenoir, hello mate. Hello, hello. But we have the fantastic producer, Peter Delvecco, who not only won an Oscar for Frozen, but he has the latest feature film, Frozen 2. He's joining us today, Dom. How exciting is that? Pretty exciting. I, I had a little watch this morning, but emotional roller coaster. So it's I'll amazing, isn't it? it? Yeah. And we are back at Cameo, uh, and Sean, the lovely Sean, is on the uh, decks, the ones and twos for us. Hello. Hello. You weren't expecting to speak then, were you? No. <laughs> Claire, Claire's just entered the room. Hello, Claire. Stripey uh, tops all round. Thank very you very nice. much, Cameo. Shout out to them as well, because they introduced us to Peter to get this wonderful podcast for you lot to hear him and tell you all about how to make an animation Oscar-winning feature film. How to melt your heart. Because he did melt our hearts. I can't wait to talk about it, because I don't cry very often. And I cried at this film. And it was emotional. Sean, did you cry? Uh, no. I didn't Brilliant. Cry. She, she did. She's got a heart she, of yeah. stone, <laughs> this stone. one. Yeah. Absolute. <laughs> did you not? No. What about the first one? No, I didn't cry. Either. What's up with you? I cried at another film, but... Hang on, let's track back a minute. Have you, have you cried at, like, Lion King? Uh, maybe when I was, like, five. You're, like, from Leeds, right? So I understand we're very tough. Inside, <sighs> we don't cry much. Right? Right. We, we're brought up to be tough. Yes. Don't cry. Don't show emotion. Nope. Did you like the film? Did you like... Did you... Oh, yeah. I loved it. Great. I loved the film. But you just didn't get emotional in the right way at the right like, time. Like, I welled up, but I didn't sob. <laughs> you didn't even have a single tear kind of... Kind of tear All right. Going. I no. didn't have tears streaming down my <laughs> face. He did. I was like... Hey, me. I wasn't like bubbling into my... It's on the floor, the, fetal the, position. There's Zoe Ball <laughs> behind me and loads of other press, right? And you literally go... I can't take it. No, that didn't happen for me either. But I still love the film. Yes, I love the film, but you don't have to cry to love a film. That is correct, Sean. Um, don't know. I, you cried at The Hangover, so, you know, says it all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm joined by Dom. Tiger that got me. Oh, Dom, you are the king. You are the king of really bad puns. Um, I should oh, my, introduce. I have to cut that one. I should, I, I've got a lot of time for Mike. I should introduce Dom. Um, he not only has directed three feature films, but the fantastic latest feature film he directed was Winter Ridge, which is out now. You can watch it anywhere on Apple Play, on Sky, on digital, and you can buy it as well, can't you? You can indeed. Can and should. And you should. Uh, I'm Giles Alderson. I'm the director of the Dare feature film, which had some amazing news this week. Um, we not only had our sales agent Millennium at AFM selling the film, but we got picked up by the brand new Horror Collective, which is a mixture of Epic Films and Dread Central. They've joined together. And the Dare... Um, it's Epic Central. It's Epic Central. Dom, you're so good at these puns. I'm excited to see how many puns you're going to drop in throughout this, uh, this podcast. Sean's got a counter out. <laughs> It's two so far. We could just count this many. Um, and uh, the King Arthur movie that I'm doing at the moment, Arthur and Merlin. I handed my first um, version into the execs. Dun, dun, dun. The first uh, cut of that movie, which is kind of really scary. The Dare took three years, and mm. now we're getting released. The, the King Arthur's out in March. <laughs> That's a quick turnaround. That's scary. Yeah. So I was just with the VFX team now talking about some of the VFX stuff we're going to put on there. And it's a scary place to be, but it's also really exciting. You know, you seeing, it, seeing it all form. Yes, it, all these little bits and bobs that you've 
poured your heart and soul into, and then、mm-hmm. suddenly they start to form something that's coherent, and yeah, you're like, oh, well, this could be quite good. It could be quite good. You do feel like a filmmaker at that point when it all comes together, because there's points when you go, oh my god, how are we even going to connect this? Yeah, but then suddenly it does. And you add a bit of music. You add a couple of sounds, some stab sounds. Yeah. In a dramatic scene. Um. No, you just some, you, some wind noises. You do. It makes a huge difference around the castle. Suddenly, you get this this great effect.、Uh, so Ollie Parker has been editing has done a brilliant job so far. And、uh, let's see what they think. I'll let you know next week. Um, we are waiting for Peter here at Cameo. He's arriving any minute. When he comes through the door, we should give him a round of applause. Yeah.、We? I mean, we're going to surprise him by just starting and be like, "No, we're in. We're in. Start." We like to do that on the podcast, don't we? We don't want it to peter out. That's his third terrible pun. Sean is shaking her head. It's embarrassing.、Um, Dom, let's talk about the Make Your Film event,、uh, December the tenth. Why not? Why not? So, number six. You、now. weren't ready for that, were you? I, I definitely wasn't ready. No. So、uh, number six. So far, we have. No, it's not December the sixth. No, December the tenth. So、uh, it's on the sixth. Yes. No, it's the no, sixth six event. Six... <laughs> it's December the tenth. It's the sixth event. We don't know anything、oh、about this. Oh my god. <laughs> we just basically pick like some information out of a hat, but it got mixed up today. <laughs> totally got mixed up. Come on. So, so okay. So, okay. Fill so so we got we got、uh, Deborah Haywood, who、mm-hmm. is the fantastic Biffa-nominated producer, no, director, director and screenwriter of, of Pincushion. There we go. Yep. And now we have our second guest announcement, which is Stuart Brennan, and he is the producer and lead actor of Tomorrow, which is Scorsese exec-produced feature film about、yes. um, PTSD. And Martha Pinson, who's Scorsese's longtime script supervisor, is the director. Whoa! So it's quite a cool film, and it's, it's interesting. It's kind of done on the high indie level, but there's obviously the connection all the way up to Scorsese. So、mm-hmm. it's a nice connecting bridge between those two things. Absolutely. And it's going to be a Christmas special, and there's going to be loads of cool stuff. Sean's doing some amazing hand、uh, signalling to us to. <laughs> Ah, she just gave Sig- you signal, a brilliant one. Signal death, I think. Uh, uh, or possibly that, that、uh, our amazing guest is. I think our amazing guest、yeah. is here. So let's introduce him. We are delighted to be joined on the Filmmakers Podcast by Peter Delvecco. I want to make sure I pronounce that correctly. You got、yourself. it perfectly. Yes. <laughs> Winning already.、Yes. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, glad to be here. Myself and Dom have just come out of the screening of Frozen Two. Myself yesterday and Dom this morning, and I have to say I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and yeah, I, I welled up. It was, I got yeah, emotional. It was very emotional, very emotional, and、uh, just very visually engaging as well. All the way、mm. through, it was just captivating kind of atmosphere, which、oh, is that's great. It really、yeah. sort of gets that Disney.、Uh, Disney vibe. It do- totally does. It totally does. But we wanted to talk to you about not only how it feels with Frozen, you know, two and the whole Frozen aspects, but what it takes to make a feature film. What it takes for you as now an Oscar-winning producer, which must sound amazing to hear, shaking your head like it must be kind of like what? How did that happen? Yeah, but how amazing! We want to know how that happened、sure. because there's a lot of our listeners who love filmmaking. That's what this is about. How we go out there and make our films, and someone like yourself has achieved something incredible. And yeah, it's it's great to know that, and we really appreciate your time joining、sure. us. Yeah, really、great. good. So let's jump back to the beginning. How did you start? Because you've pretty much done animation all the way through, from what I can gather. Tell us about tell us about your journey. Well, I actually started off in theater. What so, you personally?、Oh, yeah, I worked fifteen、uh, years in theater. First as a stage manager, and then worked my way up to associate、uh, artistic director at. Uh, the Guthrie Theater, which is a large regional theater in the United States, and so that's really where I got my grounding in storytelling.、Mm-hmm. Working with new playwrights, did the classics as well, did musicals as well. Wow! And, okay.、Uh, so then,、uh, so actually, I hadn't 
uh, actually even thought about working in animation, but Disney, uh, called at one point and said, Hey, would you be willing to make the switch? And I think it was because I had been working with new playwrights and been working on musicals, um, mm-hmm. in particular that, that they were interested in the storytelling part of it. So, uh, that was 24 years ago now. Um, well, uh, I started I just, working for Disney. Just jump in though, as in terms of they just rang you up. I love the fact that Disney just rang me up, offered yeah. me, you know, to come and make some, there must have been some connection to There get was a connection there. in that there was a playwright that I had worked with who was then working for Disney. And when they heard that there was, uh, they were searching for a certain type of person, uh, she recommended me. And at the time, the studio was being run by Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider, both mm. who have a theater background. And although we didn't know each other, we had, uh, we knew mutual, uh, friends. So, um, that's what, how it started. And what kind of certain type of person were you that Good they were question. hunting for? Yeah. Animation and theater are very much the same in the storytelling part. And it's very collaborative, you know, live action. Um, uh, my, my impression of live action, it's, it's really a director's medium more so. Mm. Um, this, um, I like working in environments where, uh, all kinds of different points of view are expressed and different people, um, uh, uh, I just didn't, had no idea how long the animation process took. Yes, um, long time. Did you did you sort of have a, a grounding in Disney before, or did you sort of rediscover it around that? that well, kind of point? I, I certainly grew up watching Disney films. I mean, they only came out every few years uh, back then. But um, you know, I, I appreciated the storytelling. I appreciated the films, um, and working in animation um, was eye opening in terms of process. You know how complicated. Really, I think if you really understood how complicated animation was no one would ever have started it um uh but it's it's equally rewarding as in theater because you started you made hercules was the first one you jumped yes. on as production manager right correct now that must have been really interesting for you then to go from theater which like you say is a very director's medium very actors involved it's every day working on something to make put it on stage and here you are now as a production manager on an animation talk through the differences there and what you found yourself doing and trying not to do well, there were a lot of differences, you know, normally in theater, I'm used to rehearsing, you know, for two months and then you go into the run. Yep. Uh, the idea of working on, uh, on a single project for three or four years, um, was a very different time frame. Now, Hercules, I only came on for the last year of production. They didn't tell me that they had fired two production managers before me. Uh-oh. Um, uh, I kind of jumped in, uh, fortunately, uh, I caught on pretty quickly in terms of, of understanding, you know, how to manage the, the, the crew. Um, uh, but I learned a lot on that film, which actually helped me out a lot on my subsequent films. Right. Okay. Was there something specific there that you brought to the table that you didn't get fired wise? You know, is it, what is it that you felt? I think I, you... I stay really calm under pressure. I don't let, uh, problems. Um, uh, I don't say no because I feel like, when you say no, you'll always be proven wrong. What I, what I tend to say is we'll figure it out because mm-hmm. usually there's a solution to something. Um, uh, if there's a problem presented to you, usually there's a solution. You just haven't recognized what that solution is. So I think that and being calm uh, and calming everybody else around. The, sh- the show was very far behind and there was a lot of panic that we wouldn't make it. Um, I kind of thrive in that. I, I thrive in staying calm when others are, are nervous. Which is, I think that's, I think that's a very, very good skill. Um, but also on, on the solution front, because a lot of the time you maybe because it's budget or maybe because some other thing, there won't be an exact solution that they see in their mind that, that what they want and that they can't have. If you just say no, then you're just shooting someone down. But mm. there's often a solution that's going to keep them happy and it's going to keep production happy. 
And when you sort of when you're you're finding those decisions, that's where everyone is sort of in in unity yeah, and flowing, isn't it? I agree, and I I think even if the answer ultimately is no, at least you're coming back having given it some thought, and they appreciate the fact you you're not just saying no for the sake of saying no that there's a real reason for it. Um, but I always tell um, associate producers and production managers on the show I now produce, um, be very careful about saying no, because you'll be proven wrong. And usually you're going to be proven wrong by the very person you're trying to protect. Like, no, we can't do that effects because effects already has too much work to do. And the next day the head of effects comes in, Hey, I just figured this really cool thing out. Let me show you. And so now you've been proven wrong. Um, right. uh, uh, so again, go away, think about it, come back. If the answer has to be no, I'm not afraid to do that, but, but give it some thought. Mm. That's amazing. I, I'm fascinated now what happened next for you because you, you've built all the way up to Frozen by making some amazing films, been involved in some amazing films. Uh, you know, The Princess and the Frog, which you actually did a voice in as well, which is, I really enjoyed. I, I said one word. One congratulations. Word. Yeah. <laughs> but you sound like you've got yeah. a good voice for it already. <laughs> I, I want to hear more of that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, Princess and the Frog, uh, Chicken Little, uh, Treasure Planet, Atlantis, The Lost, Lost Empire. I mean, what was your journey to those? Was it a kind of a case of after you'd finished Hercules? Was it yeah, after I finished Hercules, then I became an associate producer and worked on on Treasure Planet mm -hmm. and then Chicken Little. And Chicken Little was interesting because it was the first uh, full CG animated movie that that Disney Animation had made. Um, obviously, Pixar was already um, uh, going full steam, but for us that was a, a transition point. Um, and then Princess and the Frog, uh, you know, I started off in hand-drawn animation, so the thought of um, uh, trying to recapture that and, and doing it in a different way, you know, involving digital in it as well, um, that was an interesting ch and fun challenge, and I loved the movie and the idea behind the movie. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then uh, Chris Buck asked if I would be interested in working with him mm -hmm. on Frozen, and, uh, uh, am I allowed to say a swear word or do you, yeah, it yeah. Out? Yeah, we love um, uh, he asked, what kind of producer are you? And I said, well, my first rule is I hire no assholes. Um, uh, <laughs> because I've learned these movies take so long that, that you have to hire people who are passionate, good mm -hmm. at what they do, no question, yeah. but are passionate about what they do and are, are easy to get along because the movies are hard enough um, mm. to work with without having to work around all the egos. Yeah, but because you can you, bring everything down as well. Of course you can. If you're working with someone, it's hard enough on a feature because you sometimes like to, the dare, which hopefully is coming out in the beginning of next year, has been three year process, and yeah. that's a, a not animation. If you like, right. it's a, what do you call it when it's a not an anim, a normal live action? Live action. Live action. Yeah. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. And just you working with those people for that amount of time. If you're yeah. working animation, that can be you know five years. Yeah. It can be longer. And True. then you working with them insanely tightly for for that longer period yeah. whereas in a live action you're not right so it's great that you're saying yeah not to employ assholes but sometimes mm -hmm. you don't know they're assholes you don't yet. but you figure it out yeah, yeah. you have a, you have a sort of sixth sense don't you yeah you can yeah. start you yeah. can tell if someone might be one and, and the, the thing at disney animation is we tend to you know our our crews go from one movie to the next movie to the next movie mm. um so you get to know people really well and that there's an advantage to that because um, we have a shorthand with each other, but you also, over time, uh, can pretty much tell, you know, who's going to be additive and who's going to be a distraction. Yes. So Frozen was your first lead as producer, right? Uh, Princess and the Frog. Princess and the Frog. Yeah, was then first. Winnie okay. the Pooh, which mm. had a significant impact on Frozen, ironically. Go on, tell us. Um, so Winnie the Pooh, um, the studio came to us and said they wanted to do a version of Winnie the Pooh that returned it to the classic, you know, what we expect the hundred acre woods. Um, but our budgets were rel relative to most features we do, or it was relatively constrained. 
And so I had to take a risk on songwriter. And so I hired uh, Bobby and Kristen Lopez um, to write the music for Winnie the Pooh. And at first, I was only going to have them write one song and hire other composers to write the other songs. But um, we enjoyed working together so much collaboratively in the story room, which is unusual that songwriters actually want to talk character and talk story, um, that when it came time to choose... um, uh, songwriters for Frozen, I said, hey, I just worked with these this great couple on Winnie the Pooh. Let's consider Bobby and Kristen. And of course, uh, uh, at during Winnie the Pooh, Bobby had gone off on Broadway and done Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. Um, so Chris Buck and I went to New York and we sat and watched Book of Mormon. And he said, yeah, I think these would be great. There's something great about um, uh, Bobby's sense of humor paired with a Disney movie. There's something subversive about that yes. that might be fun. And, and that was, so actually... I mean, I don't know this, but my instinct would be if they hadn't have done Winnie the Pooh, it may, they may or may not have done uh, Frozen. That's really interesting. Let's, let, how does, because myself and Dom don't make animation, um, I've always been really interested by it. And I've done some stop motion stuff as a producer. But how does, how do you start off, does someone come to you with an idea? Did you have the brain trust at Disney to go through that? And how do you develop it? It'd be wonderful if you could talk us through that sure. whole process. I mean, the ideas are in development. So a producer hasn't been assigned. The ideas originate with the director. And we ask them to work on three ideas at once. And that's really so they don't fall in love with any one idea and and it becomes too precious until we decide there's an idea that we feel is we want to encourage. Um, So the three ideas eventually get narrowed down to the one. And at the point where they say, I think we want to really seriously develop this one and and, uh, put it in the pipeline to get uh, produced, that's when a producer comes on board. So, uh, I joined Chris Buck. He had already been working with a writer and already had a head of story, which is unusual. But, um, when I joined, it turned out that, that I, they'd been working together for about a year and a half when I joined and it became, uh, we added Bobby and Kristen to the mix. And that was one of those instances we had really great people, great writer, great songwriters, great director, but they weren't working well together as a team. Mm-hmm. They they wanted to make different movies, and mm. it was questionable whether the writer really wanted to make a musical. I think he would prefer not to make a musical, but you know he signed up and said, I'll do it. Uh, again, very talented person, but here I am as a director, relatively new to the team, and uh, had to go to Chris and say, I, I, I just don't think this is working. And so we did make a, a switch of writer and head of story on the film fairly early on, and uh, then I went to Jen Lee, who had been working on Record Ralph, and asked if she would consider writing on the movie. And the reason I asked her is because she had come to our early screenings and given really good notes. And I could tell that she was interested in making the same movie that Chris Buck was, uh, the other director. So we brought her on a writer, and then uh, eventually uh, she was promoted to be an equal director. Uh, with him and now of course she's our cco at the studio so that was a it's an interesting point because a lot of the time it's it's not so much who's the most qualified it's it's whether they are on the same page Mm. because otherwise you you just be fighting against someone else's kind of direction they're trying to go and the direction that you're trying to go Mm. and it doesn't matter how good the quality is you're you're never quite gonna so it's it's difficult Mm. isn't it making those decisions early on but you save a lot it's important and i think early on early on in my career i used to think the idea was the most important thing you know um uh and i've come to realize that it's not um i think the the people are the most important thing Mm -hmm. because you get the right group of people they can take a bad idea and make it great 
And conversely, you can have a brilliant idea and without the right team of people, you can really screw it up and the movie can turn out bad. So, uh, um, that was, that was sort of, I mean, a small revelation to me is that, wow, I'm I'm sort of understanding this, that I'd I'd rather have a really great team uh, than a really great initial idea. That's incredible. I love that. I love that quote. And it's so true. You're right. You can, a really good director or screenwriter can make something out of a bad idea, but a bad director or screenwriter can can totally fuck up a really, really strong idea. That's I mean, it's great when both happen at the same time. Absolutely. How how often does that happen? Well, it did with Frozen. So obviously now you've got them in place (laughs) and you now you feel you've got, you've got Jennifer and Chris and you've got that place where they're moving forward. And let's say they've now come to you with, the idea, the concept. What, mm-hmm. What's next? Talk us through what actually happens in terms of do they start designing some of the uh, storyboards or does it literally Well, we, we start with character. I mean, it, okay. it really, uh, there's a lot of discussion on character. Who are these characters? What do we want? The, what's their journey? What do we want them to be? Long before we even talk about script. Uh, okay. And then we'll do early pages and, you know, we'll probably do 40 drafts of, of the script uh, over the, several years wow, of the movie okay. and in, inviting the songwriters in early. I really believe in that. Um, there some movies hire songwriters just to write the songs. We call it throwing it over the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only way to really make, the, make it great is to integrate the story with the songs. And, and for that you need, you need songwriters like Bobby and Kristen who want to talk about character, who want to talk about plot. So then Jen will write pages and they'll read the page and they'll say, Oh my God, this is a really an emotional moment. This is the best pages you wrote. We're now going to turn that into a song. Um, uh, And then sometimes the songs influence the script. So Jen will have to go back in and and rethink the script because it's not supporting the song. And and it's a very messy process back and forth. Mm. Because I guess you you never want it to just feel like here comes a song and everyone just sort of bursts into dance. So, and it doesn't feel yeah. like it's organic from, yeah. from the storyline. Yeah, and it, it seems obvious. Sometimes it's harder to to actually do it than say it, but but you're right. And, mm. uh, and you want the song, you want some sort of a change to happen to that character from the beginning of the song to the end of the song so that it's propelling the story. Um, mm. You obviously have to set it up. Even orchestration can help that. Christoph Beck mm. did a great job of, you're actually hearing the melodies of some of the songs in the score long before you you hear the yeah. song so yeah. somehow yeah. by the time you get there yeah. you feel, you feel like somehow you know it's familiar it's connected yeah. yeah or the characters have their own little uh, uh melody yes so yeah. they, they, when you see them they have a melody so by the time they're singing the song you're like oh it's part of what they're doing i love the scoring process i mean it, it's amazing you don't even notice it when you're watching a film but mm-hmm. but it does really help add to the emotion and it changes direction. everything yeah. at the moment with the the king arthur project i'm doing we're adding in some of the music and the layers working with the composer uh, nick and it's really changes it suddenly sure. you put that on and you go oh, yeah, oh okay yeah, yeah. those bits that felt maybe a bit eggy or weren't short suddenly there's a song in it or a sound and it's, it's not like, like several layers isn't it? totally yeah. that several layers must work really well I, I do i do very much like the fact that in in frozen there's there's short songs as well <laughs> it's not like okay we've started a song this mm. has got to this has got to go on for like the full sort of right. three minutes like when it's relevant it, it does sometimes sure. you've got like a 30 seconds or, yeah. or a minute and it, it's it's an interesting because it sort of keeps the pacing uh, a bit more unexpected, and mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a nice kind of uh, balance. Yeah, it's, yeah. Your uh, musical theatre background actually must have helped within this whole world. I mean, producing. I think so. Theater. A, I love I love musicals. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think um, 
the emotion you can express in song is very different than what you can do in dialogue. You can, you can go a lot further in song and bring mm-hmm. the audience along. If you tried to do that same thing in dialogue, it would, it would appear um, really corny. And yes. yet somehow in song, it you just go to, with it. Yeah, you, you accept it, don't you? You can have big jumps in time yeah. within a song and you mm-hmm. just go, yeah, you can do a whole season in sure. a song. Sure. And now you've passed a year and you will accept it totally. It's quite amazing. Um, so in terms of the story, let's get, because there's a lot of screenwriters who listen to this in terms of developing that you said you did 40 drafts now during that time how many people are putting in uh, input input, notes ideas it it starts off with chris jen the two directors myself jen's also the writer Mm -hmm. um our head of story uh mark smith yes and the songwriters so it's a fairly small group um as we progress and we start to you know storyboard out the screenings we have a story team of about 10 people who um uh, will also contribute. Um, uh, but when it really comes down to making the decisions, we almost always go back down to that small group because uh, otherwise um, you can't make everybody's version of every movie. So yeah. obviously the decisions have to be made. And Jen is the one who keeps the whole movie in her head. Um, we call She's sort of our Elsa. She's our superpower in terms of yes. she knows how, well, if we change this, that's going to have an impact, you know, yeah. later in Act yeah. 3. Structuring. Or, or stru- yeah. She's very good with structure. and, and uh, But the pressure of having to keep it all. I mean, that that's a hard job. It's a lot to keep in your head. Totally. Do you have, do you have post-it notes? Let's say you're in a room like this. Would you have post-it notes all oh, around? Yeah, we do. We pin things up on boards. And, uh, you know, when we first start the project, you it's unbelievable. You look at the floor and there's just thousands of discarded notes because sure, you know yeah. things come and go very quickly. Yeah. Characters come and go, plot changes. The one thing we knew on both Frozen 1 and Frozen 2 is what where we wanted to end the movie. But how we were going to get there, what's that path to earn that ending, um, that was the part that took a lot of work. So, so is, is there something you feel in your, your own approach as a producer that as a story you, you feel like there's a, there's a certain element you want to bring to a, to a narrative that sort of maybe fits outside of what the Disney brings and the director's bringing? Is, is there something that you, that's important to you that you want to tell in a story? Um, well, or in Frozen, obviously we example, Obviously we want to make um, timely movies that feel relevant today, but we also want to make sure it's still timeless so that you can watch it 10 years from now. So that, um, I mean, that's really important to all of us. Um, uh, so it's as relevant, you know, then as it is today. Um, I think, um, uh, we want to, we want to, um, push the storytelling. I think storytelling is much more complicated than it was, you know, 20 years ago in that audience have higher expectations. And I think, uh, we just need to find those, um, uh, deeper conversations to have within a film and we're not we don't want to be preachy we just but i like movies that evoke discussion afterwards even an animated mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. um uh, without without dictating to the audience how they should feel it's it's about bringing up these things that are universal well there's some interesting themes in there and i don't know if it was meant to be a major theme for you but i thought the the one on fear was quite interesting that that fear is an illusion um, because, you know, especially with the kind of online personas that's sort of grown up in, in the sort of the current generations, like that, that reality versus mm. the real reality and how people perceive things. I think it's, mm. it's quite a relevant topic for us, you know, um, uh, even on the first movie, we've done good versus evil before, um, and they've done it very, very well. Uh, for us, it was more um, love versus fear. And our premise on the first movie is that love is stronger than fear. And obviously that that plays out in, in the fact that Anna was able to save Elsa, who was very fearful. Uh, this one is, we deal with the same subject, love versus fear, except this time it's through change. Um, change can be 
fearful. I mean, uh, you know, we, we all experience that when we graduate college. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. I've graduated college, put in all that time. Now what? What it's do I do? What's mm-hmm. my purpose in life? Yes. If you think about it on one level, you can have a lot of fear and do nothing, or you can say, okay, I'm going to at least act. I'm going to do something. And, and uh, uh, so we look at that as one of the themes within Frozen too. Amazing. It is fascinating. I, I find this whole thing fascinating. I love, I love what you've achieved, but I also love the whole journey of it. Mm. As you know, lovely listeners, we give away promotions a lot of the time and we have sponsors and we are delighted to be sponsored by Shotlister app. And guess what? We have a special guest coming on to talk about it. You'll never guess who this is. You just, no, no, it's not Brandon Routh. No, no, it's not one of the Chris's. It is, in fact, the fantastic director, the fantastic screenwriter and filmmaker, Zach Lipovsky. Hello, mate. Hi, how's it going? Well, I'm excited to be back. Didn't think it would be me, but luckily it was. I'm quite surprised it's you. I was, for a minute there, I thought someone else was going to say hello. And have a, no, no, it's not Zach. It's yeah. not Zach. We should get Phil to do one of these ads next time because, you know, he's an avid shotlister app We should. User. Phil Hawkins, a wonderful director who is Star Wars Origins trailer, is out now. You can see that. Um, he. I reckon we should get him to do one of these. He used yeah. shotlister all the time and yeah. he promotes it as much as he can because you two were on a TV show together. <laughs> That's right. Weren't you? We were contestants on a reality show together you were about making films that's right what was it called it was called on the lot many years ago way before shotlister existed but uh and you can watch that now on youtube everyone (laughs) 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 but we moving on and we do have copies of shotlister to give away to you lovely listeners if you haven't got it already you're crazy you should get this we're giving 50 copies a month away for free ladies and gentlemen and you can get your hands on one of those now yeah what do they have to do zach well it's a really really hard thing that they have to do um it's you know very very complicated probably probably i don't think any of your users could even figure it, figure it out um any of your listeners probably not um they have to use this thing called email uh which is very oh, wow. new high-tech thing and they just have to put <laughs> in uh filmmakers podcast at shotlister.com and send one of these emails um Mm-hmm. where basically they say if they want an Android copy, a Shotlister copy, or an iOS copy, and then we just send them a free copy. So if they can handle that, they can have a free version of Shotlister. There you go. Uh, you want a free copy of Shotlister, that's all you got to do. And <laughs> you can have on links to this. will be in the show notes. Uh, it's been a delight to have you on, Zach, talking about I hope Shotlister. That it is a wonderful app. I hope I one day that. I can come on the podcast again. It'll be exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you will be. And if you haven't listened to Zach's episode, which is 107, where he talks about his filmmaking because he's a brilliant filmmaker, by the way. Freaks is out now everywhere. Is that correct? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Check it out. Yeah, um, great. There you go. If you haven't seen Freaks yet, it's ace. Uh, get the link. Get it. Buy it. Do it. And it's free. So you don't have to do any of those things. Just get it free. Um, brilliant. Zach, thank you very much. Links to all that is in the show notes, everyone. Zach, we might see you next week. We might not. It's a surprise. It's a secret. Maybe it'll be Phil. Maybe it'll be <laughs> Phil Hawkins, everyone. Till then, we're now going to get back to this week's podcast. Thanks, Zach. Bye. 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 When you are making these animations, is there a time when you think, uh-oh, 
right, I've been working on this three years. I don't know how long. How long does it take, to, let's say, Frozen? How long from inception to delivery? From inception to delivery, four years. But, okay. but really, we first started writing the script about three years ago after research trip is when we started. And then the actual production is about a year and a half. So, okay. uh, but we'll work on the story three or four years. Fine. So within that time, is there a moment where you go, oh, this isn't working? And I've heard stories and there's friends of mine who have gone off to Disney to try and make an animation movie and it's fallen apart. They've been there two years and it's not worked out. Is there ever, I mean, there must be points where you just go, oh, okay, we're struggling. Uh, that, that's we... constant. We're constantly doing that. The, right. the, what we do is every three months, every 12 weeks, we get the movie up in whatever shape it is. We get it up storyboard wise. We bring in the actors. They record all the lines. Mm-hmm. We may not have animated, but at least we get us, we edit it together and we show it. And at that point, we invite in all the other directors and all the other writers at the studio that aren't working on our movie to view it. Wow. And then we go through a very intense note session, sometimes two days, where they will talk about what's not working. Sometimes they'll tell you what's working, but usually it's what's not working. And then uh, we joke, it's like, you know, they've dismantled your car and then they all leave and you have to figure out all the pieces and rebuild the car. Um, And their solutions aren't always the right solution. So what I look for is a pattern in the notes. If everybody's giving us notes in a certain area, then you know you have a problem, even if the solution doesn't seem like the right solution. So we hopefully solve it in our own way. Um, But, and then we repeat that process, you know, five to seven times. Um, uh, It's very, very painful, but I think ultimately it is what helps elevate the film. And there must be moments when you've, you've got this, you think one of your babies is amazing. Do you know what I mean? You're like, I love this idea. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You've got Olaf doing this and it's we great. We call it and killing our darlings. Killing your darlings. There must be moments where people just, everyone in the room goes, yeah, it didn't work for me. And everyone else goes, yeah, it didn't work for me either. Yeah. Or, you know, that's, and you, ha- you have horrible. to listen to that. And, you know, the other mm. thing I've learned um, is um, don't, don't fall in love with an idea so much that you're not willing to listen to what the story is telling you it needs. You know, I always love that point in the movie where suddenly the movie's telling you what it should be mm-hmm. and you're chasing it, trying to do it. It's like, it's, it's there right in front of you and you're just trying to keep up with it. That's when you know, that's that great moment in the storytelling. Before that, it's, it's a lot harder. But I, I've seen some directors so fall in love with their initial idea that they're not willing to change, and yet the movie needs, needs to change. And on, and on that point, in terms of like what scope maybe you give the directors or the, the storytellers, is there, a, is there kind of a, a process where like they maybe have an idea and they say, okay, I want to do this, this, and this? And you'll sort of have to think, okay, can we afford to do this? Is this too visually... I mean, like Frozen 2 has a lot of very complicated like water effects. Mm, um, amazing you know, water effects. Yeah, some some effects. really, really incredible. visually stunning, um, complicated 3D set pieces. Was that like always on the script? Was it like, oh, God, how are we going to do this? Well, yeah, the interesting part is when we first started the script for Frozen 2, the only really big element that we needed to figure out was the wind character. It was, we didn't have all four elements. We just had the wind character. And so all our scheduling, all our, uh, resources were put towards that. Then as the story evolved, suddenly we needed these rock giants and then the fire, mm-hmm. uh, salamander. And then, uh, 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 the water knock horse, which, uh, 
the, yeah, the idea of it, yeah. it was a little bit of a head scratcher. How do you make a horse out of water that's on the water, but also in the water? And how do you still see it? Mm-hmm. It's a seahorse, um, right. But, got it. Yeah. you know, um, that's the advantage Disney has in that because our crews go from one movie, they're getting strong. So uh, they had done, you know, five other movies since we had done Frozen. So Moana, for instance, the, they developed water. Cool. Now we used water in a very different way and, and uh, because we actually had to... Um, crest the water at a certain moment so that the water horse could create and getting those two things to happen at the same time that that added a complication to it but it was a real effort between visual development artists the animators the effects artists the tech anim artists some um, lighters all working together to pull that particular water horse effect off mm. so they said look they didn't say no they mm-hmm. said we're not quite sure how we're going to do it, but we want to do it because we see why it's needed in the movie. And I, I find that if the crew, if you give the crew context as to why, we're not just throwing stuff in there for yeah. the sake of effects, but it has relevance to the story. And as they see the story getting better, then just like we do, they want to make the best visuals, the best story up there they can. So they, they do figure it out. If if they came back and said, and often they do, they'll come back and say, we can't do this, but we could do this. I mean, there's a definite compromise. There's um, things with the directors where we'll say, if this is the most important element to get up on the screen, it would be really great if over here um, we made something simpler. And it could be as simple as, you know, maybe we can move the camera so we're not seeing foot contact, you know, with the ground, because mm-hmm. that'll save effects artists, it'll save this and that. Uh, so there are little things that all add up. Uh, to make sure you're putting what's important, yeah. what's important up on the screen. It's actually the same on the sort of live action as well. It's sort of like, well, if we just move the camera up a bit, we won't see the the old yeah. footprints in the snow from the last take. Yes. And yeah. therefore, we'll, now sure. we don't have to spend ages painting yes. it all out. Yeah. It's very, very similar, I'm sure. Mm. The um, uh, But what is important to me and is that, you know, our, our, our release date doesn't change and our budget doesn't change. So all these changes happen you know, real time, you know, whatever you think your day is, your day ends up being something totally different by the time you leave every day. And that's part of why I love working there. That's part of why the three or four years goes by faster than you can imagine. Um, uh, It's like shifting things on a scale in a way you take one off one and then you put it onto the other Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? So you've got your set budget and now you say, right, we're doing this big water effect. We've got our horse on the water. Brilliant. Let's say it didn't work. Now you go, okay, we've really got to reevaluate this. F- failure is not an option. Right. <laughs> You're like, this, this has to work. Right. I don't care. What this has yeah. to work. Right. I mean, exactly what it'll look like, it may be very different than what you first imagined. Uh-huh. Usually they come up with something even better than we imagined. Um, uh, but it is a balance. Yeah, we have a visual effects supervisor, Steve Goldberg, who his job is to help balance the complexity of the movie and make sure that, that if we need to spend here, that we're saving it somewhere else. And, and uh, I tend to... Uh, not bring on the whole crew early because I know story's going to evolve and change. So we yes. keep a lot in reserve mm-hmm. that will um, allow us to um, uh, get ourselves out of uh, complexity problems later on. How much did the story change then from the very beginning in terms of the first sort of few ideas that came about with Frozen? So this is the idea, this is what we want to make to the end product. It'd be really interesting for um, us to know. Th- there was probably more evolution of that on the first movie. I mean, Elsa was a villain in the first movie. Really? They weren't ah. sisters. They weren't royal. Um, wow. All those things happened. You know, we couldn't, we, we couldn't feel for Elsa as the villain. And, and, and we realized she's actually a very empathetic character and, and she's more of a mythic character, you know, carries that weight of the world on her and, and, uh, probably is going to have a tragic fate. I mean, if you really think about Elsa, if Anna hadn't been there with the fairy tale character, 
Elsa probably would have been dragged down from the ice palace and killed by Hans, mm-hmm. and the winter would have raged on. Everybody would die. That would have been the mythic ending to the story. <laughs> Kids love um, it. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but when we once we made them sisters and didn't think of Elsa as a villain, but but um, uh, that emotionally opened up the whole movie. And the only reason we made them royal is the same reason we kill the parents. Um, it it puts more pressure on Anna that she had to worry about the kingdom at the same time she had to worry about getting her sister back and the parents are the same thing often it, you need you need the child or Anna to be alone in having to figure it out they can't run to their parents and figure it out so and I, I think that's something interesting that in, in this film uh, as well as like I mean I, I grew up on like Bambi and the Lion King mm-hmm. and I remember at the you time like like, did. I did yeah. it was very, very emotional yeah um, but but those films I feel like they form a morality in, in children. I think it's very, very important. Like having those deep themes, yeah. uh, you know, things as, as deep as parental mm-hmm. loss, like very, very important things to put in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's quite a difficult thing to, I, I guess, get right so that you're, you've, you've got that kind of emotional thing, but it's not becoming like too tragic, I guess. I think that's what fairy tales are for. Fairy tales are to allow you to experience a range of emotions so that you can, in a relatively safe environment, knowing mm. that ultimately it's going to come out fine. Uh, so that when you have to deal with these emotions later in life, you've at least had some inkling of, of what to deal with. So I think it's really important. I also like movies that take you through a range of emotion. If, if you can make someone laugh in a movie, I think that's great. If you can make them cry, I think that's great. But if you can do both within the same movie, then I feel like you've taken them on sort of a roller coaster. And, and when you leave, you f- feel oddly satisfied that you've actually experienced yeah. something. And that's, that's very true. Cause if, when you just have sadness in a film, Sometimes the sadness sort of brings you down, but it, it sort of hits a plateau. Mm. Whereas when you when you go through the the joy as well, it, it almost makes the sad a bit sadder and and the the happier bits happier in a way. And it, it does. I mean, it, it, it's you... the the Kristoff song is a good example of that. Uh, uh, the Kristoff song, I think, well, I think is very funny. Um, it, uh, it it's sad for him because obviously he he cares for Anna, but we needed to lighten the movie up because after that we go to some pretty. Um, Emotional places. places. Yeah, so, emotional places. Uh, that yeah. balance, I think, for the audience, especially for a family movie, is really important. And I think that's what's really interesting with a family movie. And it's sometimes, it's kind of the only place you see this this kind of world where you're literally laughing one minute and then, oh my God, the end of the world is kind yeah. of could happen here, yeah. is in animation. We do see it a bit in, let's say, family movies, live action, but it's less so. But animations, are, it works for both adults and children. Sure. And it, it, that's it, incredible, right? Yeah. And that must be a really hard balance to try and get that. Well, we we always work. start off with the emotional story. Um, right. uh, in many of our early screenings go, wow, this is, this is pretty heavy. There's, where's the humor? But, but, um, uh, it's important to find what is that emotional core of your movie. And then, um, uh, and then Olaf's such a great character because he can comment on things, but mm. you need what the situation is before you can figure out how, what his point of view on it would be. Um, uh, so yeah, that all comes later, but in the end, hopefully, yes, you've, you've, you've found that right balance. Let's talk about cast then, because you, you mentioned there well, earlier that you bring cast on quite early in the yes. process. Now, are you already thinking about if that voice is right or are you just kind of getting temp voices in before you get your names, as it were? Well, we, we uh, generally speaking, we don't hire names generally. We always mm. go, for, and different producers work differently. Totally. I believe, especially in animation, that what counts was the right actor for the right character. Totally I like agree. collaborative yeah. actors. I like actors who can improv and want to participate in it um, because ultimately... 
up on the screen, I want people to remember Anna and Elsa, not necessarily who, who did it. Who played it like a That said, I mean, Adina yeah, Menzel, totally. and, and no question. Yes. Um, so we'll, we'll audition in New York, sometimes London, LA, Chicago, um, uh, and we'll probably uh, audition a hundred people for every role that we cast, every major role wow. we cast. Um, and it's this oddest thing, and I'm sure you've experienced in your films, mm. when somebody's right for a role, you just go, oh my God, that's, that's the one. And so true, I, I you can't do. tell you why there's just something that, that, um, Some kind of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we knew very early on Kristen Bell, uh, Adina, um, uh, I think we also identified relatively early. I mean, she's such a powerhouse singer mm. that how can you resist, that um, voice. that voice oh. um, and, uh, uh. Yeah, we had a hard time with Jonathan Groff, finding Jonathan Groff. And when we did, it changed the whole character because, um, uh, originally he was just a quiet man and didn't say anything, but Jonathan has such a warm porch personality that we started to put that much more into the script. And mm. then Josh Gad, I mean, it, you know, we laugh with Josh in the recording booth because 80% yes. of what he says we can't use in the movie, uh, <laughs> you know, cause he's comparing it to Ferrari or something, you know, but, um, yeah. uh, it makes us laugh, but he always brings, uh, 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 that character alive. Yeah, it's a warm pathos, isn't it? It's yeah. that whole, I'm being funny, but I'm also being sincere. I mean, in the screening at Frozen 2, that everyone was laughing at everything he said. Yeah. You know, it was like, we want, we know he's funny. So we're kind of waiting for those yeah, little yeah. asides or the clips and all that stuff you did to tell the story of Frozen 1, which was so clever. When you see Frozen 2, you'll, you'll see this, listeners, is, is you kind of, explain what happened in Frozen 1 but in a brilliant way yeah. it's so funny and so hilarious you know it's just like this is this this is that happened yeah, oh yeah. and I think something happened here and da, da, da. just wonderful True. you know really it's, it's what Olaf remembers of the story and, yeah. and most people in real life do too they go what True. happens in the film well this happened that happened that happened yeah. it was brilliant no, really clever True. was that something that was in early on or no just... that was something you know we uh, we we knew we were meeting two different groups of people when we got to the Enchanted Forest and and uh, we realized there was so much exposition that w couldn't there be a simpler way of catching everybody up so you didn't have to explain everything. And the idea, uh, uh, I don't even remember, it may have been Jen, I'm not even sure who came up with the idea. Wouldn't it be funny if Olaf was the one who got everybody up to speed and then we could just move on? And, and <laughs> so that's where it ended up. That's perfect. And, and bringing back the, the other film, like the whole the situation with the the ship, I won't go go too yes. much into it for people who haven't seen it. Is there is there further room for expanding the the storyline, maybe into the the parent story at, at some point in the future? Yeah. Um, you know, we get asked that question a lot, and I would say right now it feels like Frozen One and Frozen Two, if we've done our jobs right, should feel connected and always meant to be one story, even yeah. though obviously it wasn't. Um, and we've tied everything up, and we really like where Anna ends, and we really like where Elsa ends the movie. Um, so to us, it's a complete journey. Mm. Um, but we thought that with the first movie as well, and it, it took it took a good year and a half after the movie uh, where we realized we missed the characters and and. Uh, Chris and Jen felt there was more story to tell. So maybe ask us in a year. Okay, what, interesting. Because Frozen was such a huge success. Did you expect that in any way? I know you probably no. knew you had something good. But... You know, we, we, we knew we had a good movie and we knew we had previewed the movie and the reaction to the movie was very strong, but no one, no one could have anticipated what it became. It, it sort of became a phenomenon and, and the audience really made it 
their own movie. I mean, mm. they were singing the songs. They were demanding that we have uh, uh, screenings where they could sing along with it. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd never yeah. ever experienced. I mean, it was a great feeling, but never experienced it. And and the fact that people are still watching the movie, you know, first one six years later. Well. Uh, that yeah, that's. Um, that took us totally by surprise. My um, editor on the King Arthur Project, Oliver Parker, his daughter knows all the songs to Frozen, but she hasn't seen the movie yet because she's too young. But how incredible is that? Yeah. She knows all the songs. They sing it in the I playground. Know. They sing all the songs and I she know. can't wait to see the movie. Isn't that, I mean, that's how big this movie was. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird because when we started Frozen 2, it says we have to make sure that if you haven't seen Frozen 1, this movie still makes sense. And, and in many mm -hmm. ways it does. But to realize that, oh, you didn't actually have to be alive when fr six years ago when Frozen 1, because you've probably now seen it on, on Blu-ray or DVD. And, and yeah, I would say the majority of our audience has probably seen the first movie. How did it feel then to sort of in the hunt for the Oscars? Was there a point when you knew this might be happening? And, oh, gosh, as the lead producer, you're going to be the one going up there and do what? Well, what, what you writing your own speech. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, <laughs> um, six years ago, uh, <laughs> I've written mine. I mean, we were so just so happy that the world accepted the movie and, and that, that, I mean, universally, it seemed to have appeal in every every culture around the world. So that was pretty rewarding in of itself. And then slowly, you know, there are many awards that you go to and slowly, uh, we were being recognized. So we sort of had a sense, but I remember going in to the Oscars saying to Chris and Jen, look, we're very fortunate to have had the ride we had our movies doing really well. No matter what happens tonight, we should feel great. And in, in truth, we would have, great. <laughs> uh, but we did, we did, we did feel good, but mostly we were really, uh, I think we were really proud to accept it on behalf of the studios. The first, uh, uh, Oscar that Disney Animation had won because they didn't have Walt had won, but oh, they created the animation category um, fairly yes. late. So yeah, I like think um, years ago, or something. Yeah, I think it was yeah. Shrek was the first one, and, right, but Disney yeah. Animation, Pixar had won, um, DreamWorks had won, but we hadn't won. So it, it meant a lot to the studio um, to get up there on the stage and accept it on their behalf. That must have well, been an amazing yeah. feeling, right? You must have great. felt great, right? It's a long uh, journey, of course, and, and you know it we're proud of everyone who, who made the film and we knew they were back at the studio cheering and, you know, getting excited, uh, when we did it. So, so when was the first talk to do the sequel then? And like you said, it's maybe took a year to actually go there and say, actually, let's sit and talk about this. Cause I imagine everyone was going do the sequel. You, we, we can, it's a, it's a money thing, but then you're saying it's, you no, know, in, in fairness to uh, Disney and Bob Iger is, um, we don't do sequels unless the filmmakers have a, real passion for doing it and it has to be the original filmmakers. Now that wasn't always true. They used to have a different division that would do it, but for Disney animation to do it, we believe it has to come from the passion of the filmmakers. So when the movie first finished, um, first we needed to decompress and just absorb everything that had just happened. Oh, and enjoy um, it, right? Then I we mean, started to work on actually a different project, uh, the three of us, um, uh, that had nothing to do with Frozen, but uh, a couple things happened simultaneously. One, we were doing that, the Frozen short. And so mm. seeing Anna and Elsa come to life again, we realized we sort of missed them. Uh, Jen was working on the Broadway show. Uh, Chris and I were uh, working um, with um, all our other divisions, the parks, um, consumer products, because now there was such demand for Frozen product that we had to keep some sort of quality control on what was being developed. So we were spending half our day doing that. And the second half of the day, um, working on this other project. And one day Jen and Chris looked at each other and said, 
what are, why are we splitting our time? We love these characters. We love this world. Why don't we just, why don't we just dive in and, and, and focus all our time on Frozen? And that, that was the beginning of it. And, and, um, I think we mentioned the idea that we were interested and they said, okay, but don't tell anybody, uh, Mm -hmm. until you have a solid idea. And I think it was the next day, Bob Iger said, Hey, I hear we're doing, uh, Oh my gosh, (laughs) see the words Uh, out. You're like, "Uh oh, pressure's uh, on. But what I love is, you know, the studio, and I'm talking Bob, Alan and Alan, um, uh, they just said, what do you need? Like they didn't say what the story needed to be, what it should be. They just said, what do you need? And, and they let us go off and, and imagine. Like yeah, I think that's a very good philosophy in, in how you commission sequels because there's a lot of stuff where they're just like, right, we've got something successful, throw another sequel mm-hmm. at it. And it's like, well, what is this told that the one before yeah. ha- hasn't already told? Yes. Uh, so it's a, it's a good safeguarding, I guess, mm-hmm. from from putting people through the suffering of an, sure. you know, dis- a, destroying something they really and, love. And believe me, if, you want, if you're going to work on a project for three or four years, mm-hmm. you want people who are passionate about it. You don't want people handed an assignment. Um, uh, that's not great for the creative process. So what happens then if you'd been in that uh, room, you know, and everyone's giving you the notes? Because you imagine you do the same mm-hmm. process again, where people are coming and going, that doesn't work. The character there sure. doesn't work. If it hadn't have been up to scratch, would you have just gone like the others, just gone, yeah, we're not doing it? Was there a point? No, where that I'll, might I'll give you a story. And, and um, there was a point on the first movie where, and it was fairly late in the process, you know, our, we had a lot of really great ideas, but you know, they weren't all connected. They weren't all adding up. So at the end of it, you just weren't feeling satisfied. Uh, and I had one boss say, your movie's in crisis. You have a disaster on your hands. What the hell are you going to do about it? And then I went to the, my creative boss and I said, look, words like disaster being thrown around. I need to know if that's how you feel Mm -hmm. because I'm producing this movie. And they said, no, the story's not working. That's what we do. We roll up our sleeves, we fix it. And that I understand. So movies inherently are not going to work. We're not smart enough to get it right the first 10 times. You just need to keep working at it and figure out everything out and not give up and persevere. And, and hopefully you get it to the point where we're all proud when it comes out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you should be. Uh, Frozen 2 is fantastic. It's a brilliant movie. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I sat on my own with all the press. It was a uh, was, was brilliant experience. And, you know, you can hear all the sniffles behind and, you know, grown-up people doing that. And sure. But that's great. That's how it should be. Yeah. It's aimed at both levels. Sure. Uh, and how nice to get the same cast back again. Was that always part of, we kind of have to do it with when the we same s- cast? When we sat with Chris and Jen at the beginning, we s- said, Two things. One, we're not going to do it unless we can get everybody back on board because we wanted to recreate that same magic, that same creative team. So that was important. The other thing we said is we were very aware of all the pressure that was going to be on us to make a film, make a certain type of film, whatever. We said in the story room, we're going to keep that pressure out of the story room. We're going to build this the same way we built the first one, starting with character. You know, Chris and Jen journaled as the characters for months. You know, Chris would do drawings and Jen would write just where are their heads at. We did, uh, they did um, uh, sort of uh, psych, uh, uh, not, um, prof- uh, what's the word? Um, personality tests mm, as the uh, characters, just to get a deep understanding of where they're at and how do they, th- what do they think about their parents and what are their issues now? What are they fearful of? Those types of things. So um, again, we built, tried to build it genuinely from character outward uh, uh, and let the, let the story kind of unfold. And I think, I, th- I think that's like one of the most important things for a film's success, because I think sometimes in the higher budget stuff, 
you have this tendency to sort of uh, craft something not from the story outwards, but, you know, due to other things. And when the story doesn't feel complete and there's little gaps in the characters or something's been cut because it doesn't sort of maybe poll quite as well as something else, but the the story itself is, isn't rock solid, people kind of pick up on that and, and it's not a complete memorable film. Right. So when you build it from that, that's when you get things that you remember. Absolutely. And I think, I think also we put enough pressure on ourselves in the story room to get it right. We want to be proud of the film. We want to make a film that we actually want to see and and feel proud of. So that's enough pressure. Yes. And I suppose there was pressure on making another hit song as well, which I suppose puts an added pressure on this. You know, the songs from the first one were just, Mm. uh, you know, top of the charts and around the world. Now suddenly it's like, well, we're making another Frozen. Well, great. Now let's make some more songs. We'd never done a sequel to a musical before. Uh, So that was very new. Mm. And I think, uh, I think we were all, Bobby and Kristen, especially like, how do we top Let It Go? And and yeah. I remember we said, look, we didn't have Let It Go when we started the process. That evolved because the story evolved. So mm-hmm. we have to trust that the same thing will happen here. And now looking at it, I actually think, you know, Let It Go is a great song and we'll always be proud of it. But it it was flawed from a character point of view because here she is, she isolated herself up in the world. She slammed the door and what she's going to live the rest of her life in isolation. So we really look at it sort of as a sort of a teenage tantrum. Uh, it was a rebellion song and you know, into the unknown is now her hearing a calling what she should really be doing, not isolation, but really act. It's an, it's an active song. And then obviously it culminates with show yourself. So to me, the three songs work together as a progression mm. of the character's arc. And and the voice itself that, that calls her is, is very haunting. And there's, there's a level of depth, you know, going back, I guess what you're saying about like music creating emotion, but there's a level of depth and kind of a haunting, mm-hmm. um, sub emotion to that. Yeah. That's very, very deep. And it kind of sticks with you every time it comes on. It really sort of resonates. It's called cuning, which is um, in Scandinavia, they use it actually to to call the the cattle home, the sheep home. Um, Mm. But it was in the first movie and we used it in the score. Anytime Elsa was really anxious and afraid, you would hear this sort of cuning voice in the background. So it has some connection to the first movie. Obviously we use it in a slightly different way in the second movie, but uh, connecting those things um, is, is fun. Mm. Yeah, and story-wise then was... Because what I really like is as well that it's very... Uh, for young girls as well, especially, it's it's really empowering and really kind of like, no, no, you, what was great again in the second movie was you don't need a man to do any of this right. stuff. And they went on their own journeys and did it themselves. Because there's a point where you go, oh, they're going to bring in, you know, a, a young hero mm-hmm. to come and save the day. And sure. it was great. They didn't. Yeah. You didn't. And it was just only, the, there was obviously you needed to at some point to bring in that moment. But I really liked that. Mm-hmm. I really liked that you went, no, no, this is this is about these two. It's and that, and that's how there. real life is. I mean, mm-hmm. there are extraordinary women in our lives and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they handle a I'm lot, multitask, yeah. <laughs> uh, incredible. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it was important to us that it be their story and, and have that tug of war, um, between the sisters. They clearly have different points of view. Um, uh, Elsa, Elsa, more the mythic character. I think we're afraid for her. I think Anna's certainly afraid for her that she'll go too far. And, uh, uh, I, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a great part of the journey. If people wanted to send ideas to you or they've got uh, you know that kind of what does that happen in your world it does but i actually don't read them i can't read them so if if letters come in uh and i have any sense of that's what it is i i hand it off um 
uh, we really, we want to keep all the ideas internal to the studio. And obviously we see Twitter and, you know, there's a lot of, Hey, we would like if this happened in the movie, we'd love it if you redeemed Hans, but Mm. you can't really listen to that because then you'd be making the movie from the outside in. So you have to kind of put all that out of the room and again, return to the characters and let them them create their own work. So how do people, if someone wanted to get a a job at Disney, they want to be an animator or a story developer or... What would their journey be into that world? Well, we, we, um, 10 years of theater. Uh, yeah. 10 years I of mean, musical theater. The, 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 the good part <laughs> is, is the fortunate part of Disney is we always hire people who are overqualified for their job. Um, we're all that way. And, and that's how I crew movies too, is I want people, um, uh, who are really good at what they do. So obviously yeah. there has to be some, uh, that said, um, we're always looking for new talent and we have a website that people can go to and, and it'll talk about, depending upon the different positions, how to apply and what you need to apply and all that. Um, I would say that all of us there feel really fortunate to be working there. Um, uh, and, uh, many people could never have dreamed that they would actually be there. So just because you think it's a far-fetched idea, don't, because, um, if you have a passion for what you do and you can bring that passion to the studio, we'll probably find a place for you to work. And do you, do you sort of look at, uh, like maybe short animations that are winning awards or festivals? Oh, yeah. Do you, do you, you ever look, look at, at that scale? Or? Sometimes. Sometimes yeah. when it just yeah. floats by and uh-huh. maybe you catch something. I mean, there's two things going on. We're always looking for, uh, uh, bringing people from the outside. We're also looking uh, very much internally to develop people too. So with the whole Disney plus that adds a whole new, uh, ability for us to see young filmmakers who we may not be ready to risk a whole feature on, but who could develop a great series or something. And, and so it gives opportunity within the studio to develop talent as well. That's right. really nice. Yeah. You must see something occasionally, you know, whether it's winning awards or just see something and see something in that director or that storyteller sure. and think, Oh, that could be useful for our team. Sure. But again, what you come back to is, is about people. Yeah. They might be a brilliant storyteller or great, yeah. made a great animation. <laughs> they're very they might be a bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah. you're going to go well do you know what it doesn't matter how good you are we, we, it's a long period right True. it's a long yeah. time what's the website uh, where people can uh, i think it's just uh, disney well uh, i think it's disneyanimation.com um, it could be walt disney i'm pretty sure it's disneyanimation.com okay all right I'll look we, can, we can find the link in that put a link sure. in the show notes Great so now. if anyone out there is you know got a hankering to do that then hey why not you know it's a, it's a long way to go if if you're not living in america to go sure. do that but hey uh, you know but we we you know we've been able to hire people all over the world to work here it's it's the studios become very diverse that way and it's been great um i know visas are always a difficult part of it but if we can climb that hurdle um we like having a, a really diverse workforce and story team because it just makes our movies better mm-hmm. what do you, what's the good thing about a, a story person within your world then what what's a good attribute for someone to have obviously to not be a dick but well, yeah there's works? there's two parts i mean one is uh, obviously the ability to draw what is only on written as words on the page so we get a sense of the movie so that part's very important to be able to convey uh, in as few drawings as possible an emotion or, uh, but then there's a second part of the job, which is really more about, um, keeping the big picture, the structure of the story you're telling in mind and what is, what does the story need at this point and, and what's it missing and to be able to contribute in those conversations. And, and clearly story artists can't be precious with their work because we're often, having them do the same sequence three or four times and then throwing it out mm. and they can't take it personally because it's all in service of the story. Yeah. yeah and I, I guess, I guess an important skill is not to sort of be thinking of your ideas and then trying to put them into the script, 
but it's almost to just be connected to what the general pool of, of yeah. what the stories and the characters are. And your ideas are like spawning from that pool. Sure. So yep. then it all connects to yep. everyone else and... It's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. Uh, Peter, this has been amazing. Thank you That's so much. Yeah, thank, thank you. Really, thank really, you. really interesting. Um, where can people, if you, are you on Twitter yourself? Can they follow you and say thank you for coming on the podcast? No, you know, I, I've avoided Twitter. Um, Have you? Okay. Uh, just, uh, it's, it's, right now I've kind of felt like it would be a distraction. So, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I don't necessarily visit Facebook that often, but. Um, What's your Instagram? What's your handle? Uh, Peter Delvecco. It's really tricky. <laughs> Same as mine, Charles Alderson. Okay. Really tricky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yours, Dom? What's yours? Dear Dom Lenoir. What? Dear Dom Lenoir. Dear Dom Lenoir. D I R. D I R. Oh, director. Yeah. Dom how, how do you say it? You know, it never, never quite works when you, yeah. when you write it, it's all right. When you write it, it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah totally. Right, yeah. yeah, but saying yeah. it is difficult. Yeah. Okay, you can follow us all on Instagram yeah. there. Um, Peter, honestly, thank you so much. Um, remember why you're doing it, everyone. Uh, remember what your story is and go out there and make your indie film. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send the elevator back down. Um, and make your film is on the December the 10th. Yes. Uh, so if you're in London, come along to that with us. Get your tickets now. I think all the... Um, early birds are gone. Early birds are sold out. We're sold out already. Uh, second guest is announced. Stuart Brennan, our first guest, Deborah Haywood. Our third guest will be announced very soon. Um, whatever you're doing, go out there and make your film. Make it happen for you. However it is, if, if you're writing to Peter's team and saying, hey, I want to be an animator, do it. It can happen for you. Lovely. Have a great time, whatever you're doing. Thank you again, Peter. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Sean, Thanks. and everyone here at Cameo. Say bye-bye. Bye. Cheers, everyone. Take bye. care. See you next Tuesday. Bye.